Welcome back to the Apprentice One to One podcast. I'm your host, Mark Allison, and we are carrying on with the audio only series looking at inspection and testing. And today I'm recording at my office in between uh, writing up some EICRs myself. So, excuse any background noise that, that may pop up. We do have people working in the building. Um, but we've kind of got up to last time having spoken about um, insulation resistance testing and the um, airfoil loop impedance testing. And we was at the point where we'd come to the end of doing airfoil loop impedance tests and we were looking at some of the other um, live tests that you maybe need to do. And one of those is to do with phase sequence testing. So this is the verification that phase sequence is maintained for multi-phase circuits within an installation. Uh, and in practice, you generally achieve that by um, checking polarity and connections throughout the installation. Um, but while the regulations require uh, phase sequence to ma be maintained throughout, it, it shouldn't be confused with phase rotation. So your phase sequence is confirmed um, with the installation circuits isolated using continuity testing as carried out for continuity of conductors. And it's you know generally the same method as your R1 plus R2, so that's big R1 plus big R2. And optionally, um, you can check phase sequence by using a tester. So there's a couple of different types. You've got the rotating disc type or an indicator light type. Um, and instruments containing both the above forms of indication are available, as stated in guidance note three. Um, so you can get some approved voltage testers actually that have a phase rotation facility on them and you can see how that would be measured uh, with a standard free wire phase rotation tester. Um, generally speaking, uh, if you've done your continuity of conductors, you're going to know that the phase rotation is right. You just need to be making sure that you're verifying that as well through a process of live testing. As we move away from that, you get towards the operational and functional testing of RCDs. Um, so you need to be checking that they do meet the requirements of the intended installation. So the operating times of RCDs, you require to test those in a couple of following circumstances. So where they're relied on for the disconnection of compliance with Chapter 41, or where they're installed as additional protection as specified in Chapter 41. And where RCDs are installed with circuit breakers, and the circuit has the characteristics to satisfy Chapter 41 without the RCD, then testing of the RCD is not essential unless it is specified for additional protection. So that's stated in guidance note three. So you only need to test them if it's there for additional protection or it's um, relied upon for the sole means of disconnection. So for each of the tests, um, readings should be taken on both the positive and negative half cycles and the longer of the operating times recorded. So you'll see if you're familiar with multifunction testers, you can record um, at 180 degrees and zero degrees and that's kind of what this is saying so that's positive half cycle and the negative half cycle so they're basically at upper end, opposite ends of the AC waveform. Um, prior to doing your RCD test it's essential for safety reasons that your airfoil loop impedance is tested to check that the requirements have been met so this is a live test you need to ensure that um, you haven't got an issue of airfoil loop impedance that's going to prevent this from working because you know essentially you're putting a, a fault onto the um, circuit through your multifunction tester. So the test is made on the load side of the RCD between the line conductor of the protected circuit and the associated CPC. The load should be disconnected during the test and these tests can result in a potentially dangerous voltage on exposed conductive parts and extraneous conductive parts 
when the airflow loop impedance approaches the maximum acceptable limits. Precaution must therefore be taken to prevent contact of persons or livestock with such parts. And that's stated in guidance note three. So again, it's warning you there that this test, when you're at the limits of what airflow loop impedance um, acceptable allowance is, you need to be mindful that you could be creating danger for those using and, and be in contact with the um, extraneous conductive parts. So you do need to factor that in before you go off doing these tests. Again, live testing, extra precautions at all points while you're going uh, through the process of testing. And again there, it's telling you to make the test at the load side of the RCD. So some people will take these measurements at the end point of a final circuit or um, a socket outlet on a ring final circuit, for example. But guidance note three is wanting you to do it at the actual load terminals on the RCD itself. Uh, the operating time should be no greater than those stated in table 41.1 uh, for final circuits and 5 seconds for distribution circuits unless supplementary bonding has been applied in accordance with regulation 419.3. So the times you, you've got, and generally speaking, you're going to have RCBOs. Now it says here as regards additional protection, uh, where an RCD with a rated residual operating current not exceeding 30 milliamps is used to provide additional protection in the event of a failure of basic protection and or failure of the provision for fault protection or carelessness by users, the operating time of the device must not exceed 40 milliseconds at a test current of five times um, the rated uh, 30 milliamps. And some of the uh, manufacturers of RCDs actually state a uh, value above that. Um, I think it was, you know, they've, they've changed that since. It was kind of a little window in time where some of them didn't operate quickly enough with that test current five times. So they came up with a another figure and, um, you know, we'll ignore that and just stick to what it's saying in guidance note three. So we must not exceed 40 milliseconds um, when you were doing that test. So you would do it at your um, positive and negative half cycle um, and if you're going through the multifunction tester, it would do it at half times first, and you shouldn't see a trip. Uh, it'll then do it at one times the um, rated value of your RCD. So if you set it to the 30 milliamp range, and you should get a, a trip in time for that, and then it would do it again at five times at both the positive and negative half cycle. And again, you'll get a trip in time for that, and you need to record the highest value or, of that measured time on the test results. Um, so some of the other tests you can do, you've got the integral test device, so it's incorporated into each RCD, and this is kind of a functional uh, check of the mechanical parts of the RCD, so you verify that it works by pressing the test button. So it doesn't provide a means of checking the continuity of any earth conductors or any of the other circuit protective conductors or anything like that. Um, the RCD test button only will operate if the RCD is energized, um, it is just a functional check of the mechanism itself. So other functional testing that you can do on an installation is to include switch gear, controls, interlocks. So you need to make sure that they all operate and confirm they work properly, they're uh, mounted uh, in the correct way and they can be adjusted if they have adjustments on them. So the settings of all your adjustable relays and controls need to be checked. Uh, AFDDs have been introduced in the 18th edition um, and they have a test button, um, some of them do, some of them don't actually. So functional testing can only be carried out by pressing the test button. There's no other means of um, functionally testing them at present. Certainly no test methods that we can use on them that have been 
given to us as yet. Who knows that they might come up with something as we move on to them being more commonplace. Uh, and if we move on through guidance note three, again in the uh, test sequence of tests, we've got verification of vault drop. And while on your model forms and things, there's nowhere to record this. Verification of vault drop is not normally required during initial verification. And it's usually sufficient to check that vault drop calculations have been undertaken and the design vault drops are within the limits required in BS7671. So that's kind of telling you in guidance note three, whilst we need to uh, be aware of it, there's no actual requirement during initial verification to do a test procedure to determine it. So where it may be necessary to verify that vault drop does not exceed the limits stated in relevant product standards or installed equipment, BS7671 provides guidance to do so. Where no such limits are stated, Vault drop should be such that it does not impair the proper and safe functioning of installed equipment. Vault drop problems are quite rare, but the inspector should be aware that long runs of circuit conductors or high currents can sometimes cause vault drop problems. So again, as the inspector, you need to be uh, aware of the issues that vault drop can cause. Um, so have it in your mind that it can be a problem and you need to be able to understand how you work out vault drop. Um, accurate measurement of vault drop within an installation is not practical as this would mean measuring the instantaneous voltage at both the origin and at the point of interest simultaneously. Together with the instantaneous load current, an indication of vault drop can be obtained to ensure that it is not excessive for the proper functioning of the equipment by simple voltage measurement at the equipment terminals with the installation fully loaded. Vault drop may be determined by measurement of the combined live conductor resistance and calculation using this value and the full load current of the equipment. So this will determine vault drop within the circuit which can then be used to verify compliance. So there's a couple of ways there you can approach it and I know some of the modern multifunction testers will actually give you a value of vault drop. For example the TIS MFT Pro I've been using recently has a vault drop function in it um, where you can connect it into the circuit and it will give you a measurement of vault drop quite how accurate that that is I'm uh, not 100% sure to be fair I've just played around with that feature because it's not something that we need to be um, measuring on a regular basis I've kind of played it out on a couple of the YouTube videos actually where I've calculated what vault drop should be and then used the MFT Pro to measure it and it's been pretty much spot on so it does it does work in my experience but quite how it is working I'm not entirely um, sure to be honest so we do also need to be aware of temporary over voltages um, to a low voltage system fault. So that's something else that's in there. So you've got verification of protection against over voltages and that can be um, of atmospheric origin or due to switching. So that's um, where you can have you know, lightning strikes or the switching of um, transformer and DNO equipment coming into the system that can cause um, voltage surges and things you need to have protection against that as much as you possibly can do and um, we've got SPDs and things to help with that now so that's something else to be aware of within the, the um, inspection and testing process that you need to be aware of those things. And we will talk about fault finding as well because that's something that um, a number of the apprentices and learners have been asking over on the apprentice one-to-one -one Instagram community and I think it's it within mind AM2 assessments because there is a part of that's to do with fault finding. And it's it's important to know that, you know, when you're under, under, when you're under pressure to find a fault, um, you know, it's it can be distracting. So you must try and remain calm while you're doing it. Uh, and usually it's one of two things. So you've got a, a short circuit 
somewhere or an earth fault which again you know it can be a direct short between line and earth or neutral and earth or it can be um, a high resistance connection there's there's certain things there that are slightly different to a, a direct short circuit so where you've got a connection between line and neutral and there's very little resistance between that so it can be either somebody screwing through a cable for example or there's been um, a wiring issue at an accessory or a failure of equipment where you've just got that direct short now between your line and neutral conductors and that usually results in very quick operation of the circuit protective device so when you're on your um, AM2 assessment I think Rick was saying how um, that the fault he had was on um, a radial circuit where when it was switched um, it essentially connected line and neutral directly together within the accessory and um, he had to trace that down and you need to remember when you when you're doing um, fault finding certainly with your AM2 that it's using the dead tests so I mean uh, there's, there's other methods and practices that seasoned electricians will go to before that um, but you shouldn't be doing it so when you're fault finding by using the dead test the big one that's going to help you the most is your insulation resistance testing so if you have that situation where you've got a, a dead short between line and neutral if you were to take an IR measurement between line and neutral you would be reading a very low value of insulation resistance usually down at zero megaohms um, and that's because the copper conductors are connected together somewhere so you've got that dead short there's no insulation between uh, the two conductors um, and that will point you in the direction of the fault um, you know and again if you've got an issue with a connection to um, earth for example so you've got an earth fault and in that case it, it might not be a, a direct connection it could be speaking out in in the real world where you've got a um, spider that's made a home in an outside light for example and there's a, there's a small connection between earth and or a, a neutral and line or it could be that there's some water ingress that's not providing a particularly fantastic connection between earth and line or neutral but it's there and you'll get that that tracking of electrons taking that path some of them will sneak their way down there and disappear down the earth conductor and it's what tends to happen then is the RCD will operate if you have one in, in the circuit before an MCB. And that's because the, the flow of current is small. And um, yeah, they see those things much earlier than, a, than an MCB would, for example, or a fuse wire. So if you've got an RCD in the system and there's an earth fault and that, um, again, your go-to test would be insulation resistance testing. So if you take your line and neutral conductors together and test to earth and you're measuring um, a, a low insulation resistance value, so anything, as the regulations say, under one megaohm, but we know that as practicing electricians, really anything under 20 megaohms, and I would say even at a little bit higher than that, actually you're going to be doing some investigation to find out what the problem is. And again, being mindful of anything in the circuit that can cause those readings to drop, because sometimes you can be caught out by neons or USB sockets and, and silly things like that. So you need to make sure that you are actually measuring a true value of insulation resistance between the, the line and neutral and earth conductors. So if you've got an earth fault, you would put your line and neutral together. And again, as I said before, start at 250 volts if you're not sure what's in the circuit and take a measurement. If it's reading clear, you can nudge that voltage up. There's no point going straight to 500 volts unless you absolutely have to. Um, and again, that will point you in the direction of what the actual issue is. Uh, and if you wanted, you can separate out the, the neutral and, and line from each other and measure that to earth as well and see exactly which one it is that's affecting it.
um, and that will help you trace out the fault. So in the case of a, a direct short circuit where line and neutral are connected at the end of a radial circuit, if you test that of insulation resistance and you're getting a reading of zero megaohms, you can then investigate as to why that would be the case. And if there's multiple points on the circuit, and I know this isn't part of the AM2 assessment, but it can be um, a tricky one with ring final circuits where there's lots of points on the circuit, for example, and you've got a direct short line to neutral, you don't know which accessory it's behind or which bit of cabling might have been damaged, you know, Mr. Mouse or Rat having a nibble, you can start to break the legs of that circuit apart. So obviously ring final circuit, you've got legs that go around. So if you break that at some point and then test along each leg, you can see which way around the circuit you need to trace to find the problem. Otherwise, you're kind of going off in a logical manager, start starting at one socket and working through every single one. And if, you know, by some unfortunate circumstances, the one with the fault in is the one right at the other end of the ring final circuit, you've taken everything off um, to get to it. So there is some uh, detective work needed and you can kind of split the circuit apart. And the same thing can apply on a radial circuit as well. So if you've got a, a lighting circuit, for example, where you've got um, an earth fault, and it could be that it's in an outside light or it could be that it's just in the front room because the client's changed the light fitting and not quite installed it back in, in the correct way. And, and again, if you're measuring at the distribution board and consumer unit and you're seeing that there's an issue with the insulation resistance, um, you can use continuity testing as well at um, various points within the circuit. So you can um, go to a, a light point within that circuit and take a, a measurement at that that particular place disconnecting out the loop through I mean it depends if you've got two or three plate wiring exactly how you would do that um, but you know you can take insulation resistance measurements as well so if you disconnect for example the, the second light on the radial circuit and all of a sudden if you go back to the, the distribution board and consumer unit and the insulation resistance is cleared and you're measuring a good value so over 200 megaohms for example but then at the light fitting itself, measuring further into the circuit, that reading is still um, of a low order, then you know the problem is, is further on in the installation. And then you can kind of repeat that again, maybe jump on another couple of light fittings in the circuit, break it again, and take the measurement in each direction and see um, where you need to be heading to locate the problem. And you can use continuity testing as well to see if you've got issues. So if you... Um, are at a distribution board for example sometimes you don't need the insulation resistance um, measurement to see that there's a problem you can just take a continuity check between line and neutral and if you get a dead shot with that you know that there's um, a pretty solid connection there most continuity meters will pick that up um, but my go-to test method would be doing an IR test um, so, I, so I hope that helps I mean with AM2 I don't really want to um, walk through the process of how you would fault find you know, to the point of, of finding the issue and correcting it because it's just cheating yourself at the end of the day. You just need to understand how these test procedures work and how you can use them to fault find. So if you listen back into the continuity testing section and the insulation resistance testing section, applying those dead tests will help you locate faults. And you, you need to remember that when you're doing AM2, it is just the dead tests that are going to help you locate the faults. Um, and, and again, remaining calm and keeping a clear mind while you're approaching it in a logical manner will really, really help you. Um, some inexperienced inspectors often, when they're presented with faults, will go out and start dismantling entire installations. And, you know, 
they're not really getting anywhere. There's, there's usually the probability that we'll introduce some other faults along the way. And at, at that stage, it's all just a mess. So you need to be logical, clear-minded, um, and approach it without rushing. That would be my key advice. And when you come out into the real world, even more so, certainly in a domestic property, you imagine you're hunting a fault down on a socket circuit and you've got the client watching over your shoulder because they just want to get the fridge freezer and the internet back on. It can be distracting and it's just to remember that that logical approach of um, turning off the, the, the supply, making sure you do the appropriate dead tests in a safe way and then using your detective skills to kind of narrow down on the circuit where it is and then obviously once you get to that stage you need to be a little bit more invasive and start looking for the problem. So it could be that it's within an accessory, usually that would be the case. If you're unlucky and it's uh, damage to cabling within the fabric of the building due to rodents or nails and screws and stuff, then you're going to have to get looking. And you can use the maths again to determine exactly where those are. I've had that before where you can use your IR test to know that you've got a fault, for example, between socket A and B within a bedroom. And you can kind of measure it out yourself to know how far away those two things are from each other. And then looking if the cable's running up or down the wall or through the floor voids. You can have a good idea if you then take a continuity measurement on that particular shorted out cable. And then applying uh, the resistance value off that cable from the tables in BS7671 to know kind of where you need to look. So which floorboard you might need to lift up or whereabouts in the wall you might need to break in and find the, the screw through it. Um, you know, usually that's pretty obvious because there's a hole in the wall where the customer's just drilled through the cable. But sometimes it's not always that clear cut. Um, I can think of a few times where I've had head scratches trying to chase out faults in people's houses. And certainly on in, early in my career, I was no different to anyone else where I would be pulling things apart and have stuff all over the place, uh, panicking and flapping. So I'm just passing on that experience and learnt knowledge that you don't need to go down that road. Um, believe in the, the training you've had and what you've learnt and actually apply it out on site. Don't be afraid to work through the test processes in the right way rather than just wanting to solve the problem for the customer in the quickest time frame possible by you know, trying to shoot straight to the issue just off the cuff and not carry out an appropriate investigation. Speaking again about that, one of the other things you're going to have to do within um, your assessments is filling in a certificate. So I would say make yourself familiar with what certificates look like and the model forms in um, BS7671 and they're in Guidance Note 3 as well um, give you a good idea of, of what you need to be working through. Um, so don't miss the basics is what I would say on that. Make sure you're looking at all the different sections um, and if you're looking at a certificate for um, installation rather than reporting so you've got an electrical installation certificate make sure that you are familiarizing yourself with the, the first page where it says about the design, construction and inspection and testing of the installation and that you are signing the appropriate boxes because there could be three different people for example and again with the particulars um, of those signatories that you record in the correct detail and when you move further on through the document you've got to record details such as the supply characteristics and earthing arrangements so you need to be familiar with what those look like so the difference between TNS and TNCS the difference between what a three phase head looks like and a single phase head um, what you would write down in the nature of supply parameters so for um, the nominal voltage U slash UA for example um, even on a a single phase installation it's not always what you think so make sure you are familiarizing yourself with what you're recording in those boxes so that's where you'd record the, the voltage 
400, 230 volts, for example, and your frequency of supply is 50 hertz, and then whatever your prospective fault current and earth loop impedances are. And then again, for the supply protected devices, you need to um, record what they are. Um, so there's a box for that as well. Um, to identify the means of earthing, if it's an earth electrode or via the distributor's facility, um, you've got to fill all that in. And then the box for maximum demand and, and load. And some electricians will just go for um, one amps under what the supply rated fuse is, but you can calculate this out. And there's some videos on YouTube again from other people who've run through this. And if you actually apply the letter of the law, um, how a lot of the figures we'd record in there wouldn't actually um, make a lot of sense. But you know that that is in there. Uh, and again, your main protected bonding conductors. So you need to record what the actual material is of that conductor, its size, and that you've verified the continuity. Um, and which services they might be connected to or parts of the building, uh, what the main switch is, so you have to record where that is, what the actual um, BS number of it is, how many poles it's got, its rating, etc. So that's all on there. And then you've got a box which is comments on existing installation. And I guess when you're doing your AM2, there's probably not a lot you'd want to write in there, but that's quite a useful box when you're out doing the day job. And if you look in guidance note three, there's a whole note of um, pages and pages actually of guidance for filling in these these documents so if you are preparing for your AM2 I would recommend you, you get a copy of guidance note 3 and have a good read through that section because they pre-fill in some of the certificates and then go through step by step why each actual part um, contains the information that it does um, one of the key areas of an electrical installation certificate are an EICR I mean, they are different in the way they're set up, but they're really, really important. It's the schedule of inspections. And I've said this before, it feels like a thousand and one uh, tick boxes, so it's death by tick box. And the temptation is to just tick your way through it and sign at the end because it really looks like a lot of effort. But I would encourage you not to do that um, in the real world or on your AM2 for, for different reasons. But I mean, out in the real world, if you've ticked a box to something that you haven't actually done, you're responsible for that. So you're saying you've done something you haven't, and if there's an issue with it, you know that's going to come back on you. So make sure that you're using NA where appropriate and ticks where appropriate. And if you're on an EICR, that you're actually writing in the codes you've observed um, based on that particular section of the inspection schedule. Um, you know, And again, on your AM2, if you've put a tick in the wrong place, then they're not, you're not going to do you very good in passing it. But generally, if we look at a, a typical inspection schedule, it starts off with a look at the distributor's supply and intake equipment. So that's looking at the meter and the service head, um, for example. And then it moves on to talk about if there's parallel or switched alternative sources of supply. So that could be that you've got generator uh, capability away from the actual supply that you're dealing with. Um, so you need to factor in that. And then you've got your automatic disconnection of supply. So that's looking at the distributor's earthing arrangement. If there's an earth electrode, um, the conductor connections to do with earthing and your bonding connections. Um, if there's any RCDs being provided for fault protection. And then it moves on to basic protection. So that's talking about insulation of your live parts and that your conductors are covered in insulating material. You've got barriers or enclosures and the, the correct IP rating. You've then got additional protection, which is basically talking about RCDs and supplementary bonding, uh, other methods of protection. And again, really when they're talking about that, it's to do with selv and pelv, or you can have double and reinforced insulation, so class two equipment, 
Um, and then you can have electrical separation of an item of equipment, so a shaver point, for example, which is a safety isolating transformer in it. Then you go on to look at your consumer units and distribution boards, and there's a whole like list of things you need to check on that. Um, and it's basically an, an examination of the consumer unit and distribution board to make sure that everything um, that should be in it is in it and that it's been um, installed in a safe way. So I'll pick a few out, for, for example. I'm not going to read through them all, but you've got isolators for every circuit or group of circuits and all items of electrical equipment. So that's saying that you've got isolators there, the suitability of the enclosure for its IP and fire ratings, so that you are complying with the current version of the regs as per IP and fire rules, um, that you have got your warning labels in place, for example, that all your conductor connections are correctly located in terminals and they're tight and secure. I mean, a lot of it's quite obvious and common sense, and you would be doing it anyway, but you need to actually read and tick. So read and tick, read and tick. Then you go on to look at the circuits that are installed. So you'd be looking for um, your adequacy of your current, uh, your conductors for current carrying capacity, that they've been, um, the cables have been installed correctly, that they've been supported correctly, that you've got your fire barriers and sealing arrangements in place, that non-sheave cables are in um, conduit, trunking, ducting, etc. Um, no basic insulation is visible outside of an enclosure, that your RCD protection is there where it's needed, and so forth. Um, you've also got functional switching, and if there's any firefighter switches or emergency switches in there as well. Uh, then you've got current using equipment, so that's permanently connected equipment, and it's just checking that it's not damaged, it's securely fixed, and it's suitable for external influences, for example. There's then a section to do with um, locations containing a bath or shower, and generally that's now concerned with RCD protection. So there's a section there on that one. And then you've got another um, part, which is um, other part seven special locations. So that's just a list of um, any other locations within the installation, and to say that you've um, had a look at those as well. That's kind of what the model form limits itself to. If you're using software packages from all of the different vendors, so you've got the CPSs who have their own software versions and you've got uh, various packages from other people. You know, there's different ways they arrange that schedule. There's um, extra bits in that people add in as well. Um, but primarily they are based on the model forms. And I think when you're doing your AM2 assessment, they are just printouts off of that. Uh, and the next sheet along, if you were doing an electrical installation certificate, would be to do with the schedule of test results. And basically that's just recording all of the things you've measured that we've spoken about earlier on in this. Um, so again, you would lay out your circuit description. So you would um, fill out the, the top section of that um, based on the DB reference, what the ZS is at the board, um, you know, what in test instrument you've used to record the information and your details. So make sure you're looking at that as well um, but you would state what the actual circuit description is its circuit number what the protective device is so it's bs number uh, it's type if it's a, a circuit breaker for example if it's brc type it's rating so that could be that it's a 32 amp or a 16 amp it's breaking capacity so that's to do with the maximum short circuit current it will handle so for a domestic uh, circuit breaker for example it could be 6ka um, but when you're talking about commercial it can be 10ka if you are selecting the right right equipment. Uh, then if there's an RCD, what its milliamp rating is, and generally again on domestic it's going to be 30. Um, the reference method that the cable's installed uh, within, so that's an observation from you, uh, how the cabling has been installed, so if it's clipped direct or if it's in trunking or if it's 
above an insulated plasterboard ceiling or whatever else. Uh, then the size of your conductors. So again, if we're talking about a ring final circuit, 2.5mm on your line and neutrals and 1.5mm on your CPC if it's twin and earth or twin and CPC. And then again, if we speak about ring final circuits, and this just applies to ring final circuit continuity, your measurements of little r1, little rn and little r2. There's a box for recording all of those. And then your continuity, which is your big r1 plus big r2 or just the R2 on its own and a box to record the measurement of that and that's when you can start looking at the comparisons we spoke about earlier on in this series of um, the maths behind your little R1 and little R2 for example um, adding them together and then dividing by 4 and how they should approximately map out to your big R1 plus your big R2 then you've got a box for the um, insulation resistance test voltage and we didn't used to have to record this but now there's a box for it so if you were testing at 250, 500 volts or 1000 volts, you can pop that in there. Then the values of insulation resistance between live and live, so that's your um, line conductors um, and your neutral in there to see what the resistance is between those two and then again between your live and earth, a different box again to put the value in there. And then it's just a tick box for polarity to say that yeah, polarity is the correct way and then you've got a box to record your ZS value in and again, you can look at that with the maths based on what your ZS at the distribution board is or ZE at the intake if you're right at the intake and see if the maths kind of plays out between what you measured R1 and R2 plus that ZE, ZS dB is um, based on the measured ZS for that particular circuit. Uh, and then you've got the RCD times that you can record in there and then the boxes to tick to say that you've tested um, all of the RCDs and AFDDs if they're, they're there. And, and really those boxes are the ones that irritate me the most because you've got to go down and tick all the damn things when really they could just put that in the schedule of inspections couldn't they that where RCDs and AFDs are, Ds are in place test buttons have been pressed if you tick that in the schedule of inspections that's two columns gone from a, a very complicated test sheet for end users so I think that's something they need to look at to be honest I mean and then you can record any remarks so if you've got um, something that's caused an issue within the installation for example you might want to note it um, and try and explain it or provide a solution to that problem if you've observed something that's not quite right so there's that as well um, yeah that's kind of the test results for a single phase installation and again with the three phase installation it's largely the same but you would break it down to um, you know you'd have 1L1 for example and 2L1, 2L3 um, as you would list through your circuit numbers. So sorry, I'll say that again. So if you go for 1L1, 1L2, 1L3, that would be uh, your first breaker, if you like. And then it could be that you've got a, a three-phase one on the next one, so you could put 2TP and, and write exactly what that is in there as well. And again, if you go and look at the model forms, it takes more, it makes more sense. It's not hard to explain um, through audio, so it's well worth looking in the book or having a look at some of the videos that are put together on YouTube. Uh, and you can go on and look at more of the test sheets that are to do with uh, minor works and your EICRs and the differences on the inspection schedules for those and I'm not going to run through all of them I just wanted to mention that you need to familiarize yourself with filling in test sheets especially when you're preparing for your AM2 because it's all well and good knowing how to carry out these tests knowing how to fault find and, and put things right but if you don't know how to record that on documentation you're going to fall down at the last hurdle so make sure you are spending some time familiarizing yourself with the documents 
and again if you get yourself a copy of guidance note 3 it's not the most expensive book in the world there are they are in there so it's a really useful book or if you've got access to a copy from your employer uh, or a copy of the regs as well have a look in there and familiarize yourself with the documents but we've overrun the half an hour mark on that one we've kind of waffled away through some of the last little bits of live testing a little discussion around fault finding and then moving on to talking about the forms so i hope you found that useful and we'll pick up with some more discussion around inspection and testing as we move along so we might have a, a re-look at some of the differences between initial verification and periodic inspection and there is already some requests coming through on it on instagram because i've now released a few of these um, so we'll see what people want to hear and um, i'll keep them coming thanks for listening and i'll catch you on the next one